nice. There's no switch? Okay. You just turn it on there. Okay. First reading is from John chapter 13, 1 to 17. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And the second reading is from Hebrews 9, 13, 15. Hebrews 9, 13 to 15. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, everybody. Today we encounter the story of Jesus's the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It is a story that is well known, but perhaps traditionally not well understood. So let's have a look. And with this scripture, we open a series of sermons 
on a stretch of the Bible that also perhaps doesn't get the attention or comprehension it deserves, the farewell discourses. For five chapters of John's Gospel, we get to listen into one conversation, a conversation between Jesus and his disciples the night before Jesus was tried and crucified. This conversation is uh, known by a number of titles, including the Farewell Discourses, that's how I know them, and there is nothing like them in the Synoptic Gospels. By Synoptic Gospels, uh, just in case you're wondering, Synoptic Gospels, what I mean by that is the other three Gospels uh, in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those three Gospels are in many ways so very similar in terms of their style and content that they're often referred to collectively as the Synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic means to view together, just as, for example, a synoptic weather chart shows you lots of all information all together. In contrast to the Synoptic Gospels, John's Gospel is very different in both style and content. The, the way that I read it is that I, I think that John assumes that you've already read and are familiar with one of those other three Gospels. At times, he plainly assumes that you already know about things detailed in the Synoptic Gospels, like, for example, the arrest and execution of John the Baptist. He assumes you know all about that. And he skips over or he excludes things from his account that you must already know about, like Jesus' parables and Holy Communion. But he gives details along the way that he knows that you don't know about. Like who it was exactly who cut the high priest's servant's ear off as Jesus was being arrested. So back to these farewell discourses. From Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that the night before Jesus died, he and his disciples shared together the traditional Jewish Passover meal. Jesus sent his disciples ahead of himself in order that they might find a specific guest room, a specific upper room in a certain man's house, large and fully furnished, and that they were there to prepare for the meal. The disciples find the place, they make the preparations, and then they all recline at the table to eat together. And for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the thing to know is that Jesus reinterprets the Passover story so as to show them that actually it points to him. The, the bread is his body given for them. The, the wine is his blood shed for them and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so Christ takes the Passover meal and institutes for us the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion as something that is all about the cross. It's all about the cross. But relatively speaking, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they spend very little time in the upper room. For Matthew's Gospel, for example, what happens in that upper room accounts for only 14 verses in a 28-chapter book. So actually, we spend very little time there if we're journeying with Matthew. 
In contrast, John spends 155 verses, five chapters, in a 21-chapter book, telling us in detail about what was discussed and done that night. But in all of this detail, he doesn't mention Holy Communion at all. So we might well ask, what, what is this story about Jesus washing feet? What is this story doing here? And why is it in the place where we were expecting to hear all about the Lord's Supper? Well, let's start at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, uh, since uh, chapter 2 of John's Gospel, we've, we've all known that Jesus has an hour. At the wedding in Cana, when his mum asked him to help, him with, to help with the, 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 the wine shortage crisis, Jesus replied, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And at various other places along the way, John has explained to us that Jesus escaped suffering in one circumstance or another because his hour or his time had not yet come. But the hour is, is yes, it's, it's, it, it refers to his death, but it's, it's not just his death. It's, it's the hour for him to glorify his father and for him indeed in that to be glorified. It is the glory hour. It is the cross. It is the most beautiful thing the universe will ever witness. It is the glory of God on full display. And his ministry on earth has been... Uh, um, that is the purpose and reason for his presence on earth in the first place, the hour. But his ministry on earth has, has been about loving. It's been about loving those who were his own, those who believed in him, the children of God, born not by way of biological ancestry or human decision, but born of God, those who believed in him. And now he'll love them to the end. Again, uh, the, the Greek uh, is, is worth pondering. The word translated end is telos. Uh, and that word, telos, can also be translated as finished or complete or indeed perfect. So then, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, when, when Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect, the word again there is telos. Be, be finished, uh, therefore, as your Father in heaven is finished. Be mature, complete. Be a grown-up. Be finished. How? how? How do you be finished? How do you behave like a grown-up? Well, actually, by being loving to everyone all of the time in everything, especially to those who hate you. That's when you're finished, when you can do that. Because that's what God does. So to hear, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them 
into completion, to the finish, to the last. He loved them perfectly. In verses 2 to 5, John sets the scene uh, further for us. He, he assumes that we already know. He doesn't give us any details. He just plainly assumes that we already know about that deal that Judas Iscariot struck with the chief priests in the temple. So he tells us something that we don't know. Verse 4. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, it's very commonly said, and I've heard it said, and maybe you've heard it said, that in the ancient world, foot washing was a part of how a host welcomed uh, their guests. Uh, and that, you might have heard, the, the guests, they had their feet washed by slaves. And you might have heard that the job usually fell to female slaves. And actually, if you have heard that, I'm not sure that there's a lot of evidence that that's true at all. I'm not sure it's true. It might have been true for some of the ancient cultures around Israel, but in contrast, the Old Testament provides an abundance of evidence that foot washing was a near universal part of getting ready for dinner, whether you're at home or reclining uh, at, at, at somebody's house as their guest. Yes, sure, foot washing was a normal part of what happened in preparation for dinner, but overwhelmingly, in the Bible, water is provided so that you might wash your own feet. Abraham and his three guests in Genesis 18, let a little water be brought that you may all wash your feet. So to Abraham's servant and his men, when they went looking for a wife for Abraham's son Isaac, they come to Laban's household. And there they are provided, quote, with water for him and his men to wash their feet, unquote. And again, when Joseph entertains his brothers in Egypt, them not yet knowing who he is, water is brought by Joseph's steward that they might be able to wash their own feet. And there are other instances during the times of the judges, during the reign of David, people are recorded as washing their own feet as part of preparing themselves for food and relaxation and indeed for bed. Song of Songs, chapter 5. I have taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I have washed my feet, must I soil them again? And Jesus, in the house of Simon the Pharisee, Luke chapter 7, has caused to point out to Simon that Simon gave him no water for his feet for him to wash his own feet. Uh, but rather, in the Bible, if ever it might appear that somebody else is going to wash your feet for you, then something truly extraordinary is going on. In response to David asking uh, Abigail to marry him, 1 Samuel 25, she bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and am ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. But actually, 
that appears to be hyperbole and an exaggerated expression of humility in the face of saving grace that she's not going to die after all. There's no suggestion in the text that Abigail did actually wash David's feet nor any of the feet of David's men. The narrative takes a different turn. Uh, this is speculation, but I don't think Hebrew, Israelite, or Jewish culture would have allowed for slaves to wash people's feet for them. Too intimate an act with respect to the recipient. Too icky when somebody washes your feet for you. Too intimate an act with respect to the recipient. Too demeaning an act with respect to the slave. Outside of our text today, the only two other places in the Gospels where we find someone washing another person's feet are in Luke chapter 7 and in John chapter 12. Therein we find women washing Jesus' feet, but in the first instance with tears and with kisses. And in the second instance with an expensive perfume, a pint of pure nard, worth, we are told, a year's wages. Such encounters where everything is as astonishing and extraordinary underscore the fact that when somebody else washes your feet for you, at least in Jewish thinking, something truly extraordinary is going on. A remarkable act of self-effacing, costly humiliation in the service of others. Something profound is happening. Took off his outer clothing in our NIV translations, took off his outer clothing, interprets the literal, he laid aside his garments, as it is, for example, in uh, the King James and in older translations. The literal Greek suggests that Jesus was naked, save for a towel wrapped around his waist. The NIV suggests that Jesus was never naked because he always retained his underwear, which in his day would have likely to have been a short, sleeveless tunic. Um, it is possibly this garment without seams that the Roman soldiers gambled for in John 19.23. But does the distinction matter? Does it matter whether or not Jesus was naked? Well, if somebody walked into church this morning wearing nothing at all, except a pair of socks, uh, then we'd go, hold on, you can't come in, you're naked. To which, of course, they would, could reply, no, I'm not, I'm wearing socks. But for us, that distinction would be spurious. Indeed, culturally speaking, whether or not they're wearing socks, that's irrelevant, they're naked. But if they then proceeded to take off their socks, then they would be stark naked. So too in John 21, when uh, Peter, who is working on a fishing boat, recognizes that it is the risen Lord Jesus speaking to them from the beach, he says, it is the Lord. And with that, our NIV Pew Bibles tell us, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. However, the literal Greek, as represented in older translations, such as the King James is, he wrapped his garment around him for he was naked and jumped into the water. Is there a point to any of this, you might be thinking? 
Yes. To a first century audience, whether Jesus is wearing his undertunic or not is irrelevant. Just as to a 21st century audience here in Perth, whether a naked person is wearing socks or not is irrelevant. The distinction between naked and stark naked is culturally determined. Jesus was naked. Yes, he had a towel wrapped around his waist, and he may also have been wearing a short, sleeveless tunic, but from the perspective of a first-century Palestinian culture, Jesus was naked. And nudity was the workwear of slaves. Clothes are, in the ancient world, all about status. No clothes, no status. For us, public nudity is criminal. For them, public nudity was shameful. And by shameful, I don't mean embarrassing. We tend to use shame and embarrassment as synonyms, largely interchangeable terms. And Australian culture is, by and large, a guilt-innocence culture, not an honor-shame culture. So we're culturally out of touch as to what it might mean for someone like Jesus in an honor-shame culture to actively bring shame upon himself. In such cultures, honor is money in the bank, literally as well as figuratively. Shame is expensive. It will cost you. Shame will have negative implications for every area of your life, socially, economically, in the household, outside of the household, shame is expensive. It's costly. For Jesus, then, in both his action and in his dress, this is an intensely costly act of self-effacing humiliation in the service of others. We can perhaps now hazard a guess as to why Matthew, Mark, and Luke perhaps didn't feel it wise to incorporate the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet into their gospel accounts. And it is clear that Peter, too, is utterly scandalized by what's going on. It just doesn't compute. Once again, I think we can see that Peter's role in the story is as being the one who says what everyone else is thinking, but no one else has the guts to say. Speak first, think later is Paul's, so is Peter's modus operandi, and he's doing it here again. It's worth following the dialogue closely. Verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And John opens his gospel with, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. As also in the other three gospels, Jesus' ministry is utterly incomprehensible except that a person has the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells Peter, you cannot understand. No, it's impossible for you to understand what's going on at the moment. Pre-cross, 
pre-resurrection, pre-ascension, pre-Pentecost, you can't understand what's happening now, but you will understand later. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus' words need to be understood spiritually. Again, we are alerted to the fact that what Jesus is doing is, if you like, an enacted parable, something physical that has a spiritual meaning. Belonging to Jesus involves being washed. It's a necessary part. Not washed, not belonging. Uh, Baptism, is that the answer? Well, yes, certainly baptism, but again, not the washing of skin with water per se, but rather what it stands for spiritually, the washing of a guilty conscience with the blood of the Lamb. Then, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my hand, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. The, the only way that Peter can accept what is going on is to reconfigure the whole thing into some kind of parent-child type relationship where Jesus now takes the parental role of washing him as though he was a baby. That, that he can cope with. That is something that Peter is, is okay to deal with because that preserves Jesus' dignity. Something that Peter is prepared, uh, desperate to preserve. But something Jesus knows cannot be preserved. Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That is why he said, not everyone was clean. Uh, Clean and the corresponding verb to cleanse are important words in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, only that which is clean can enter the presence of God uh, in the temple or in the tabernacle to be offered in worship, to be used for God's glory. It must be clean. And by clean, the Hebrews meant what we'd call ritually clean, which may or may not have been very clean in the sense of hygiene as we know it. Oftentimes, things were only clean after they'd been splattered with blood and the ashes of a burnt bull. The blood of something killed in sacrifice, that made it clean. Although I think if we'd been looking at it, we perhaps might not have considered it clean in the way that we understand clean. But now it was clean. And in this instance, Jesus is referring to his disciples as clean, although not all of them, because what makes them acceptable to God, fit for purpose, ready to enter the presence of God, able to be used by God for his glory, is that they believe in Jesus. They believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah. That's what makes them clean. And insofar as they are clean, Ahead of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, they are recipients of grace, like all believing Israel before them, grace ahead of time. When 
Jesus had finished washing their feet. He put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. At, at a basic level, it's not hard to understand what um, Jesus is doing here. He is demonstrating the simple truth that he has preached from the beginning, that whoever wants to become great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first should be slave of all, as Jesus is recording. For example, as saying in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and 44, Jesus is modeling servant leadership, just as, in fact, he has always done, asking, for example, blind beggars what he might do for them. But if we left it there, we would, like Peter on that day, be more in the dark than in the light. This is an enacted parable. Jesus is teaching his disciples about the cross. That's what they'll understand once Jesus is glorified. As demonstrated in the foot washing, the cross is an intensely costly act of self-effacing humiliation in the service of others. Foot washing, the cross, either one, this is humility. And if you were here for uh, Christmas Day, you might remember the difference between modesty and humility. The two things are both good, they're related and they're similar, even overlapping, but they're not identical. Modesty is lowering oneself before others. Humility is lowering oneself for others. Jesus, uh, wonderfully, wondrously in the incarnation, beautifully in the foot washing, but now most perfectly in his glorification, his death on the cross, Jesus is lowering himself for others. As demonstrated in the foot washing, and now most perfectly in the cross, Jesus humbles himself in order to make others clean. By his blood, we are clean, washed clean. By his sacrifice, we are forgiven. Jesus died for me and for you upon the cross in order that we might be forgiven, that I might be forgiven, that you might be forgiven, free from sin, death, and judgment. Jesus died for me in order that I might be clean, ritually clean, spiritually clean, legally clean, acceptable in the presence of God, fit for service and ready for his exclusive use. 
in good conscience with a clean conscience. So then, when Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. What does he mean by that? Perhaps the first thing to notice is that Jesus doesn't say, now that I, your leader, have washed your feet, the leaders among you should do likewise. That's how some churches have interpreted this. Foot washing is now a public demonstration of who's in charge. The prerogative of the elders, who will come wash your feet in full battle regalia. No. Jesus is saying, now that I've washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet, each submitting to being washed, each submitting to washing equality, end of hierarchy. But to move on, the word should is a difficult word. And when telling others what they should or shouldn't do, it's a word actually best avoided. The Greek is something like this. For if I, the Lord, have washed your feet, you are obliged to wash the feet of one another. For I have given you a pattern in order that just as I do to you, you also might do. The the verb that I've translated as obliged is the verb that you'd used to communicate a debt of money. Pay it forward. It's a debt you owe. It's an obligation. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Noblesse oblige. We are speaking the language of an honor-shame culture. It would be shameful for the student, having received such a cleansing from his master, to refuse such ministration to others. Shameful if you refuse, blessed if you do. Does this mean that we should regularly wash one another's feet? Well, to be sure, the early church interpreted Jesus in that way, and in 1 Timothy, we seem to have a reference to the first first Christians obeying Jesus literally. Paul writes for us, uh, uh, in 1 Timothy, no widow, 1 Timothy chapter 5, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good, work, of good deeds. In the traditional church calendar, Maundy Thursday is the night for foot washing, the night before Good Friday. Maundy comes from the Latin word for commandment, which is mandatum. I certainly would not want to discourage anyone who wanted to observe Maundy Thursday by foot washing. I won't discourage you. And indeed, I've heard many stories of the Holy Spirit being powerfully at work during and in response to foot washing as a part of Christian worship. Nevertheless, to think of foot washing 
as a sacrament would be a mistake, I think. And the Christian who believes that Jesus is commanding foot washing, making it mandatory, might be making the mistake of literalism. Literalism is when we take what appears to be the plain meaning of a text in such a way that we miss the real meaning of the text. For surely the obligation of foot washing is the obligation of living a cross-shaped life. It's, it's all about the cross. Now we know why this is here. Now we know why this is in place of Holy Communion. It's all about the cross. Costly acts of meaningful humility, loving sacrifice for the sake of others. Love, yes, love indeed. But love, that's clearly love because it is expensive. Because it costs me something real and buys you something worthwhile. Not something simply figurative, symbolic, or for display. And the Lord be with you all.